Probably one of the most, or probably the most famous verse in all the Bible is John 3.16. Uh, among one of the second tier uh, verses would be 1 John 1, 9. How, how many of you have memorized uh, both those verses, 1 John 1, 9 and John 3, 16? Yeah, these are great verses uh, to have put into our, our memory bank. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we apply this verse, 1 John 1, 9, in, in our pursuit of our individual and personal holiness. And that's good. We should. However, there is more here than just our personal holiness. What if I was to tell you that 1 John 1.9 is not first about our personal holiness, but about the holiness of the church as a whole? What if 1 John was not about our personal holiness first and foremost? It is part of our holiness, uh, but it's more about the church as a whole. What I'd like to do this morning is to see how that verse fits into the larger context of who we are as a body of Christ. And so if you will, please turn to 1 John chapter 1, and we'll be reading there. That's page 1,864 in the Bible that's in front of you. If you didn't bring your, your Bible or if you didn't, uh, if on chance you left your phone at home, which probably is not likely, uh, you can find uh, there in the Bible, page 1,864. So it turns out that our individual holiness is significant to more than just ourselves. Our individual holiness is significant to more than just ourselves. Our holiness relates to the body as a whole, and we see that as John uses the word fellowship. And so as we read these uh, first nine verses here in 1 John 1, look for that word fellowship and start trying to make a mental tie to how that ties into 1 John 1, 9. Beginning verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. And with his son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. That God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this morning, I want to biblically define the word fellowship and want to elevate the status of the word fellowship in the life of the church and then ask, how do we strengthen that fellowship? How do we strengthen that fellowship? But let's first concentrate on, on this definition of the word fellowship. Now, if I say fellowship in the context of a Baptist church, what is the first word that comes to mind? <laughs> Food, specifically fried chicken. Uh, yes, uh, uh, fellowship certainly involves eating and being together with, with one another, and it is uh, appropriate and fitting for it to do so. 
But if we only limit it to eating, if we only limit it to food, then we have restricted the word in a way in which God did not intend. Uh, we have put a, a false boundary on this idea of fellowship. The, the Greek word for fellowship is the word many of y'all are familiar with from different Bible studies, the word koinonia. And in the classical Greek, the use of that word moves from anywhere from a business partnership to some sort of group being together to even the marriage relationship. And so that koinonia really reflects a, a, a deep oneness that's there. Biblical fellowship happens. Biblical fellowship happens when we share a common goal and when we share a common purpose. Uh, fellowship actually develops more through, by or through work. We, we experience more fellowship by working together than we do eating together or hanging out together. And so if you think about the work that your Sunday school classes do, uh, when you're on mission, when you're doing a project, when you're on a, a mission trip or you're doing something, the sense of uh, fellowship that is there is stronger and deeper, and it often results, or almost always results, in us forming a certain identity about who we are. We help form an understanding of who we are based on having this shared common purpose and goal. The Apostle John talks about two elements that affect worship. It's what we believe and how we live. What we believe and how we live. And this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning, more so than just on the biblical definition of, of fellowship. But just remember, it has more to do with sharing and working together in a way that helps form our identity. So if John is concerned about fellowship, the question we have and I bring to you today is, how do we strengthen this idea of biblical fellowship? How do we strengthen biblical fellowship? Well, first, uh, the text tells us that we need to agree on what we believe. And then we need to spend time figuring out how to live righteous lives. And we can do that by being aware of our sin and then confessing our sin. Those are the things that will help us strengthen our, our sense of fellowship within the body of Christ. So let's talk about the first one. The first one is we, we have to agree on what we believe. We have to agree on what we believe. This is a foundational element for fellowship. Winston Churchill was, of course, uh, the prime minister of Great Britain during World War II. He actually had a very long political life. He was in politics almost 60 years. He began his uh, adult life with great political ambition. His father was a very well-known politician in England, Lord Randolph, and he very much wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. Winston graduated from Britain's version of West Point, their military academy, and then he was commissioned as a cavalry officer. And what he wanted to do is he intentionally and purposely would take risky assignments or take advantage of circumstances in the course of a battle so that it would raise his stature and would literally, purposefully, intentionally, in his mind, get his name in the papers back home. So that when it came time for him to shut down his military career and launch his political career, the people would be electing a war hero. And so whether he was engaged in uh, tribal warfare in India or surviving an ambush in the Sudan or being captured as a civilian journalist in the Boer War, being a prisoner of war, and then escaping from a prisoner of war camp, Churchill always was testing the hand of providence, and he was doing so with a purpose in mind. Well, he began his political career in the, uh, in the party of his father, Lord Randolph, which was the Conservative Party. Well, after a few years, he got sideways with the Conservatives because of a disagreement on their policy on trade. 
And so he switched from being a conservative party member to being a liberal party member. Now, how many Christmas cards do you think he got from the, Christmas, the conservatives after he made that switch? Probably not many. And, and we can imagine today if somebody switched from being a Democrat to a Republican or vice versa, the party that, that they left uh, are no longer going to be feeling very close or a sense of oneness with that person. There's going to be a strain there, and the reason is obvious because at the core, they're saying that they believe different things. They believe different things. So what we believe is real important. Now, Churchill was vilified by the conservatives. Uh, what was interesting with him, after 20 years, he got put out with the liberals and switched back to the conservative party. So he flipped and then he flopped. Uh, and, and then he would uh, get it, give it and take it right back from the vitriol that he received from politics. So what we believe is foundational to our experience of fellowship. What we believe is foundational to our experience of fellowship. There's only so much fellowship that we can have with people who believe differently than us. And to the extent, well, I'll say it this way, fellowship is regulated to the degree on which we agree that Jesus is God. The experience of fellowship is regulated to the degree in which we agree that Jesus is God. And where those things start to vary, that's where our fellowship starts feeling a stress and a strain. So what is it that we are to believe about God? Well, John tells us here in the first two verses of, of this passage. And this is really how John is formulating or expressing the gospel, at least how he does it here in this, first, uh, this, this letter, 1 John. So let's read the first couple of verses. What he says here is, was, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was, the Father, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Again, that's John's kind of a circular way of expressing some of the core components of the gospel. And that phrase there, and the life was manifested, that's our Christmas phrase. Uh, that's what John, John means when he says, and the life was manifested. He's talking about Christmas there. Jesus taking on flesh, the incarnation, God being among us. So the gospel is the core component of any full and lasting fellowship. The gospel is the core component of any full and lasting fellowship. Now we can have fellowship with other people, we can have fellowship with other groups and, and, and strong fellowship and good fellowship. It can be built around where you, uh, a particular place that you live. It could be a school. It, you can be part of a team. You can be part of a unit. And you can go through some pretty uh, unique and difficult and trying or positive experiences that yield a, a great sense of fellowship. But the only full and lasting experience of fellowship is built around a legitimate spiritual plane that stretches for eternity. All those other experiences of fellowship last just for a while. But fellowship that lasts for eternity is built around the gospel. And so in our desire for visible unity, we must remember that fellowship with God comes first. Fellowship with God comes first. So let me give you a couple applications uh, to this point about agreeing on what we believe. One is for uh, the church as a whole, uh, abroad, a uh, picture for uh, perhaps uh, even Christendom, joint worship services with other churches who, who believe differently on foundational biblical matters are superficial at best. When we start varying on what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about Jesus, 
joint worship services with other churches are superficial at best. Now, there are some churches who will take it one step further and have a joint worship service with other faiths, faiths other than Christianity, which begs the question, what are you worshiping? Who are you, who are you worshiping? You can't be worshiping the same person. You can't be worshiping the same God. It's not possible. We can have interfaith dialogue and should, but we cannot have interfaith worship. It's just impossible to have. And so that's one application. Here's another application for us, uh, maybe on a more personal level. And I would uh, draw uh, attention to our young people for this point in particular. Uh, as you start something new, uh, be it high school, be it college, be it a, a job transfer, or a, a new situation of any kind, be careful as you interact with people who present, who identify themselves as Christians. Just because they have some phrases or some terminologies that sound good to you may not necessarily mean they believe the same things about those terminologies, those words. Be careful. Explore what they understand and what they mean when they say certain church words or spiritual words. You can get yourself in a bind or in a pickle by assuming that they mean the same thing that you do with those words. You might find yourself going places or trusting them, and they take you places that you do not want to go because it sounds familiar, but it's not been clarified. And I would particularly urge young people, when you get to the point where you're selecting a marriage partner, you need to be real clear on what you believe because the depth of intimacy in a relationship, not just marriage, but particularly a marriage, the depth of intimacy in a marriage, in a relationship, is directly tied to shared beliefs. It is directly tied to shared beliefs. So the more you're on the same page biblically, uh, the, more, uh, the deeper the sense of fellowship that you will have. So foundationally, fellowship is built on shared beliefs, and we certainly cannot look past uh, this point. So John establishes that beliefs matter for fellowship, but then he cautions us. He says they matter, but then John gives us a word of caution. He says that our beliefs have to be genuinely held. They have to be genuinely held. They can't be just a matter of lip service. We can't just say we believe in God. We have to have our lives show it. We must live righteous lives. Imagine someone claiming to love the University of Georgia, but who always wears orange. Imagine somebody that watches all the Clemson sports. Uh, not just football games, but Clemson basketball, Clemson baseball, Clemson volleyball, Clemson gymnastic. Imagine somebody that gives money to the athletic department at Clemson. But when you mention University of Georgia, the first thing you say, oh, yes, I'm a Georgia fan. That doesn't add up, does it? It does not make sense. The walk is not consistent with the talk. Verse 6 in our passage says that verbal claims of being right with God have to be substantiated by whether we walk in the light or in the darkness. Proof is in holy living. And so verse 6 says this, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John is dealing with a disconnect between what people said and how they lived. They didn't line up. And so if there is to be real fellowship, not only do people have to verbally agree on what they believe, they have to live lives that show it. And for the believer, for us, that means living righteous lives. That means living righteous lives. So how do we do that? How can we live 
righteously in a way that shows that there's consistency between what we say and what we actually believe and what we actually do. Well, John gives us some direction in verse 8 and verse 9. We need to be sensitive to our sin. We need to be sensitive and aware of our sin. And then once we become aware of that sin, then we need to confess that sin. Again, this is talking about the whole picture of the body of Christ. The entire fellowship of the body of Christ is in this one thing. So one way in which people walk in the dark is by claiming they have no sin. One hinders to fellowship is not recognizing or acknowledging our sinfulness. So look at verse 8. Verse 8 says that if we have, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. How are we deceiving ourselves? If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So a question for us is, how have we become dull to sin? How have we become dull to our sin? The longer that we are exposed to sin, the harder it is for us to recognize it or in, and for it to provoke a response. You know, Psalm 1 uh, cautions us about walking with the ungodly and then standing with the ungodly and then sitting with the ungodly. That, that exposure is uh, not in our best interest. Bud Kenny uh, here in our church was uh, once in charge of a military officer's group. And he uh, brought in a speaker, a gentleman named Robert Sartain, to speak to that group. And uh, Bob Sartain was a navigator on a B-52 bomber that was shot down over Hanoi during the last few months of the Vietnam War. He became a prisoner of war. And one story that he told that night, or perhaps it was in his book, I don't recall, was about how bad he and his fellow prisoners smelled. How bad they smelled. Uh, they were not provided showers or bathing facilities for weeks. And the, and the prison guards, uh, they didn't want to come around uh, the prison cells. They didn't want to open up the doors because the smell was so atrocious. And when the prison guards uh, did to be able to give them their uh, daily food or twice a day, however many times they got their food, they would hold their breath and they would, would pinch their nose. And if they ever got a whiff of the uh, smell that came out of that cell, they would, they would physically recoil or almost double over because it was so awful. Do you know how much Bob and his cellmate were bothered by that smell? Not a bit. They couldn't smell it at all. Their olfactory nerves had gotten used to the smell. And so even though they smelled horrible, they were oblivious to it. It never registered with them. Or once it initially registered, it did not stay with them, and they were not bothered by it. So that story leads me to this question for us. Are there things in our lives to which we've had so much exposure that we've become dull to our sin? Are there things that we've seen? Are there things that we've heard? Are there things that we've been around so much that it no longer bothers us? It no longer disturbs our soul. It no longer disturbs our conscience. We've become used to it. Some of you have got uh, perfect vision, uh, but most of you do not. Uh, and you have found yourself sitting in an optometrist's office, and this apparatus is coming in front of you between you and an eye chart, and the doctor is flipping these lenses, asking you, better one or two, better three or four, better A 
or B, as he's adjusting the lenses or as she's adjusting the lenses to find the right prescription for your glasses or for your contacts. And for those of you who've had this experience, uh, which again is, is most of us here, do you remember how it was, what it was like when you finally got the right prescription? Man, I can see. Look at the street signs. Look at the numbers. Look at the letters. Look at the TV. Everything is now in focus. Man, this is wonderful with that precision of eyesight. A prayer that we should offer and a prayer that we should ask of the Lord is that God give us eyes to see us as you see us. With your eyesight, with your vision, reveal the things that have, that have built up inside of me that I no longer see, that I'm no longer aware of. Reveal those things to us. Now, God in his mercy, he, he won't reveal everything that he sees. He, he, he will dole it out a bit at a time as we can, we can handle it and, and muster it and, and work with it. But let's ask God to let us see us as he sees us. You know, Psalm 19, uh, verse 12, David prays uh, that, that God would forgive him for his hidden sins. Uh, we ought to pray a prayer for like that. Lord, forgive us for our hidden sins. And then pray, search me and try me and see if there's any unclean thing in me. And let's pray a prayer like that. If we need a couple of areas in which we could do some reflection on, let's think about our thoughts and let's think about our words. If you're wanting a couple areas to think through, where have I become dull to my sin? Uh, perhaps Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, uh, which tells us to do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Are we thinking of others better than ourselves? That perhaps that we need to be guarding our thoughts that way. Perhaps we can let Ephesians 4.29 guard our words. Are we careful to not let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen? Maybe we need some guarding over our words. Let's pray that God would give us a sensitive heart towards sin. May we always be tolerant of people, but never tolerant of sin, and particularly our sin. Be gracious and patient and kind with people, but vigilant towards our own sin. So once we become aware of our sin, the next thing that we need to do is to confess our sin. And that brings us to 1 John 1, 9. That brings us to our verse of the day. Whether or not I deal with my sinfulness directs affect, directly affects the larger fellowship of the body of Christ. Whether I deal with my sinfulness directly affects everybody else here and everybody else that's part of our fellowship here at the church. Think about the, the football player or a member of a dance troupe who does not take care of their body. Uh, perhaps they um, uh, stay up late uh, binge-watching uh, TV. They don't get enough sleep. Or perhaps they don't eat correctly. They don't eat right. They're eating too much of the wrong thing and not enough of the right thing. All those things affect their performance, whether the rest of the team understands it or not or recognizes it or not. So perhaps that football, football player does not have the energy to play all the way through the down late in the game. Or the precision of the dancer is not as exact or as defined as it could be. Here and in our homes, perhaps we're drawing down on grace and mercy 
rather than being the, the source or the, the contribution of grace and mercy and forgiveness and encouragement. There are private and hidden sins, but there's no such thing as private and hidden consequences. We can, we can keep people from knowing what our precise sin is, but the consequences of that are never private, are never hidden. They are always affecting the people around us, whether they realize it or not. Everything that we do and everything that we do not do affects those around us. So my private mental diet affects how salty I am. Salt, salty in a good way. My private mental diet affects how bright my light shines uh, in the office, um, in, the, in the workplace, in the warehouse, uh, in the neighborhood, in our homes, here in our church home. My private mental diet affects all of those things. So this is what 1 John is, is all about. The path to deeper fellowship, the path to a stronger fellowship with us as a church family is through 1 John 1, 9, where we confess our sins. Confession is not just about personal holiness. It is there to, con to facilitate a greater strength within the body of Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we make our lives right with God, we no longer walk in the dark, but we walk in the light. And this is one of the key messages throughout all of 1 John, is that we cannot be out of sorts with other people. We cannot be out of sorts with other people and be squared away with God. That's not, that's not possible. That is not possible. When we are right with God, we will also be right with our fellow Christians. And I want to draw your attention once more back to the text and to verse 7, which I think kind of captures this, this whole thought that we have today. Verse 7 says this, But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we walk in the light how? By being confessed up. When we walk in the light, we're not, we don't have to hide anything because we've sought the Lord's forgiveness. So if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with one another. So do you want, in conclusion, do you want a stronger body with others? Then we need to be of one mind when it comes to foundational biblical matters. We need to agree on what we believe. Do we want a stronger fellowship here at Beach Haven Baptist Church? Well, we must commit to living righteously, which means we must be ruthless when it comes to ferreting out sin our sin. And then once we've discovered it, once we've been attuned to it, once we've recognized it, and once we've acknowledged it, then we can confess it. And then we can receive the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. And then we can enter into a broader fellowship where we're working towards a common goal, sharing a common mission, and being in right relationship with God. Please join me in prayer. Well, Father, we know from other parts of John and his gospel, that another dynamic of our fellowship is evangelism. So, Father, as we are one in Christ, the world may believe that you sent Jesus to redeem us. We pray for those who are not Christians. We pray for those that they, they may be won over by how we show love one to another. And, Father, we pray for those who are not Christians even today, that they will take the opportunity presented to them this morning to settle that matter of their eternity. Father, for the rest of us, we pray that you would help us not to love the world, nor the things in the world. And Father, we pray that you would help us to see 
how we're loving the world in ways we don't even realize or that we've forgotten, that we've gotten used to. How we are loving the world more than we are loving you. And then, Father, with that insight, give us the grace that leads to repentance so that our fellowship with you and with other believers is restored and grows. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in just a moment, Matt is going to lead us in, in worship and singing. Uh, for those of you who do not have your eternity settled, here is an opportunity to do that. You may not know what all the questions are. You may not know what dynamics are implied by what it means to have your eternity settled. But I invite you to come forward as Matt sings, and let's talk about that. Let's have a conversation with one of our folks here to get that matter settled. In short, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Put no confidence in yourself, no confidence in your flesh for getting to heaven. If you're hoping on your good works, that God will just kind of say, okay, you're good enough, you're trusting the wrong thing. Only Jesus Christ, will trusting in Him and what his, He's done in His death, burial, and resurrection makes all the difference and the only difference as far as getting us into heaven. Perhaps there are some of you that need to come and spend time praying, asking God to reveal to you a sharper vision or give you a sharper vision for the sin that's inside of your heart that you want to repent and receive forgiveness from. You're welcome to do that today. If anybody else wants to come and join the church, you're invited to do that.